for me, marrying for a passport was, you know, so different than being in love. It was just, it just felt kind of like, okay, well, how do I solve this fact that so many of my friends are refugees? Okay, everyone pair off with someone with a good passport. Like, let's do this thing. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And today's guest you just heard is journalist and author Anna Lakis Miller. And her story, which involves passports, visas, borders, romance, it does at first blush evoke a certain TLC reality show franchise you've probably heard of. Whenever I said to people I was writing a book about love and immigration, they're like, oh, my God, I love 90 Day Fiance. And I was like, like, guys, like, like it or not, we have to include it. I think that it does capture the tension of that moment, that it it, it is like a shotgun wedding in a way. Like it kind of shotguns this whole process of getting to know people you can often be in a very kind of unnatural, out-of-your-habitat type of environment where you're not necessarily getting to know the real versions of one another. And you do see that on the show. And you do, you know, I mean, you can take the love across borders approach to it and say, like, who could these people be if they weren't under this pressure? Anna experienced those pressures firsthand when she met and unexpectedly fell in love with a Syrian refugee named Salem. And while the details of what it took for Anna and Salem to make their relationship work are extraordinary, they're far from alone in terms of people who find themselves in love but held back by borders. And she raises this question in her new book where she writes, we're told that love conquers all, but what happens if you don't have the right passport? So today we're going to hear from Anna Lakis Miller about her own love story, as well as the variety of stories and hidden histories that she collected in the process of writing her new book, Love Across Borders, Passports, Papers, and Romance in a Divided World. And if this isn't the perfect conversation to take us into summer travel season on Ladies, I frankly don't know what is. I want to start with your story, and I want to actually get into it by asking you about your tattoo. (laughs) So could you describe, tell listeners what the tattoo is and what it signifies? I have a tattoo. I have a matching tattoo with my husband. Um, It says Kassel Hadud, which means breaking borders in Arabic. And it's sort of 
you know, the most diplomatic way that we could say fuck borders. And we got it on the day that we were sort of celebrating that our immigration journey to be in the same place was officially over. And what was so significant about that day is the fact that I'm a U.S. citizen. My partner, Salem, is from Syria. And we you know, met in Istanbul at a time in 2016. The Syrian civil war was in full swing. There were so many people who were leaving Syria. And it was so obvious to me that I had so many more rights and privileges to travel and be safe than both this person that I was falling in love with and our many, you know, Syrian friends and colleagues and as well as people from other parts of the world. And so our personal journey ended up bringing us from Turkey then to Iraq after my partner was kicked out of Turkey and we didn't have anywhere to go. And then my partner was able to then get a visa to go to the UK um, but that only had to happen because the Muslim ban was also happening in the U.S. So we couldn't just, you know, get married so that he could come with me to the U.S. And that wasn't even something we wanted to do, even if we did have the option at that time. So the way that we ended up being able to be together was quite funny because when he got political asylum in the United Kingdom, I actually had to marry him for papers. So all of our Syrian friends think it's really funny that a U.S. citizen married a Syrian refugee for papers. And um, we celebrated the fact that for the first time in our relationship, which at that point was five years long, we had equal rights by getting these tattoos together to signify that. Five years. I mean, that's so much travel, so much like bureaucracy that you're having to wade through. That is a lot to happen in a relatively short amount of time. It was a lot. It was a lot. And even even the bulk of it, because we were together for about a year and a half before he got kicked out of Turkey or anything. So when I think about this book, it was actually kind of just about three years of my life. And most people write a memoir kind of looking back on their lives, being like maybe, I don't know, 50 years old and being like, look at my days. And I'm just like, I wrote this memoir about these three really intense years of my 20s, basically. <laughs> and, um, you know, it shows sort of how much can happen in that amount of time. So you two met in Istanbul. Tell me a little bit more about how you all met and were either of you looking for love at the time? No, I don't think we were looking for love at all. When I met him, a friend of ours put us in touch and we just clicked because we were mostly both looking for exciting, you know, adventures to have. And we were both journalists. So we were really drawn to each other because we were both just so obsessed with our work that we actually had in one another a sounding board to discuss all these stories that made us really excited in the Middle East. And then, um, then we really fell in love because we realized there was no one else like each other. There was no one else that really let us just be ourselves in the same way as one another. So it was just so incredibly impossible to imagine being with someone else in that kind of a way. It was both that we'd fallen in love with each other. We'd also fall in love with Istanbul as a place because Istanbul symbolically was this place that allowed us to be together because he was Syrian. I was American. I could go to so many parts of the world that he couldn't go to. And also, likewise, he could go to parts of the world that I couldn't go to. So Istanbul was literally this sort of 
incredibly romanticized crossroads of the world where all these things came together. So I was like, screw Paris. Istanbul is the most romantic place on earth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Paris can kiss my ass. <laughs> and, and then, so the day that um, he called me from the border and told me that he was being kicked out and banned was, you know, it felt in that moment like our worlds were just collapsing, like this special bubble that allowed us to just be in the same place and fall in love had suddenly burst and you know we were being sort of flung to god knows where yeah and and i want to rewind back even a little bit more i think it was like a, a week or so into you all hanging out seeing each other you casually proposed as you put it marriage fraud <laughs> Very much so. So um, I was like trying to impress him. I was like trying to be cool. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and I we were just like sitting around his apartment, which is this like, I, we call it the cave. It was this very like bachelor pad type of vibe. And I just said, you know, I wouldn't mind marrying someone so that they could have a U.S. passport because I think I was trying to show two things. Who knows what 25-year-old was thinking at the time. But like, I think I was, you know, trying to show both that I had this like compassionate spirit and also that like I didn't really give a shit about the institution of marriage, you know, and and also because I had been living in Lebanon before I'd come to Istanbul and met him and I was surrounded by a lot of Syrians and Palestinians there. And I was surrounded by a lot of people who were getting married for visa reasons because it was a way of protection and stuff. And so it was something that was so prevalent in my personal life that I I sort of saw getting married when you're both citizens of the same place as a massive waste of a good passport. I was like, well, that's so selfish if a U.S. citizen marries another U.S. citizen why wouldn't you marry someone who needs a U.S. passport? Because then at least it's good for something. So I was just trying to make this point that I thought was so smart to this guy I just started seeing. And then he just immediately shuts me down. And he's just like, I will never marry you for your passport until my passport gives you gives me the same rights as your passport. And I was like, I was really taken aback because first it felt incredibly like noble and then it was also so impossible that I was like your passport allows you to go to a handful of places I believe it was 29 at the time because places were literally closing their doors to Syrians even places like Lebanon which it used to be practically an open border between Syria and Lebanon had recently closed the border it was getting to the point where people were trapped inside of Syria because like even neighboring countries were not allowing Syrians to come in so I was just like what is this guy going on about? And how does he ever think this is going to happen? But also, I was really touched at the same time. Once Salem is kicked out of Turkey, you are kind of faced with this decision of whether or not to follow him, essentially. So how did you feel at the time at the idea of really kind of putting your fate in his hands in some ways and having to follow his lead just so that you two can be together. 
It was really weird because it felt it felt like everything I it felt very against everything I thought of like as my feminist values as maybe like a 26 year old American woman. Um, I was sort of like, oh, I'm never going to follow a man somewhere. I'm never going to let a man get in the way of my career. I'm never going to let this happen. I'm never going to let that happen. And then all of a sudden, because life works like this, you know, I sort of get this experience thrown at me of like, you're in love with this person who doesn't have control over what just happened to them, but you have control over how you act. I always tell people, I feel like I kind of aged like 20 years and maybe the span of 48 hours because, you know, I went from being maybe a little bit commitmophobic, maybe, you know, not being ready to do something like get engaged, really commit to being with someone for the rest of my life or something like that to being like, oh my God, let's just fucking get married if it'll put an end to this nightmare, like whatever it takes to be together. And it really... For me, it was a moment where I felt like we just had to completely cut the bullshit and give it a shot as best as we could. And I say that knowing that that was the right decision for me. That's not the right decision for everyone necessarily. These things are really overwhelming and sometimes they're forces that are bigger than us and it's not always the right call to do that. But I think when you are able to do that, it creates a really special bond within a relationship that's truly unlike any other. What did your friends and you know family also in the U.S. think about your decision to to move with him? I th- you know it depended on the friends. I think some of our friends, especially our mutual friends and people who really love him. I mean, he has this amazing group of kind of fellow conflict reporter you know it's just like a brotherhood it's such a kind of beautiful bond who they were so grateful that he sort of had someone in his life that was like that um you know when it came to my friends that maybe hadn't met him yet or didn't know us together there was a lot of sort of Anna what the fuck are you doing there was a lot of confusion. I think looking back, I realized, I think I told like, you know, very small snippets to people as well, because I was a bit afraid of reactions and stuff. Like I didn't even realize until very recently that I hadn't told my mother, my own mom, who I'm very close to, that I had a job as a regular TV correspondent in Mosul. She thought I'd gone like one day because she saw a picture And she didn't realize that was my everyday job. And then she's like, oh, you didn't tell me because you're putting yourself in danger. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) So I think I was kind of keeping it from people. You know, maybe people would have responded in a way that was different than, you know, and what the fuck are you doing? You don't have to do this. But I was afraid of getting that reaction. So I think I kept pretty silent at the time. And I think sometimes I think I wrote this book to sort of be like, okay, here's what actually happened. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You mentioned the the history that's woven throughout the book, um, and you detail how not that long ago, passports were mostly about geographical restrictions based more on social classes. So when and why did it shift to restricting specific nationalities and ethnicities basically like when did it just become so wildly racist (laughs) it is really wildly racist i definitely kept trying to be like okay surely it's not just about racism and then it's like nope it's still about racism (laughs) um so i mean passports in terms of just being identity documents have been a thing you know probably since antiquity um but then you know it became more and more standard of course you know as technology sort of became more accessible to be traveling more and more people started immigrating and you know i'm going to talk about this from the u.s perspective because of course this is different in different countries throughout the world but it was really world war one that made this into a standardized practice to cross borders i think sometimes people had to be identified beforehand but not necessarily like okay like give me your papers and then actually after World War One, there was a conference where they discussed abolishing the passport and they discussed it in terms of let's let's get freedom of movement back. And I really researching that moment, it stuck out to me so much in terms of like, what if that meeting had gone differently? Like, what would our world look like today? What would these stories look like today? What would my story look like today? You know, I really was reflecting on that a lot, but of course that didn't happen. So then shortly after that, you had things like the 1924 Immigration Act, which imposed massive quotas on places like Southern Europe, the Middle East. It really only kept immigration from Western and Northern Europe coming. But that was also the same year that Border Patrol was established. So that Mm. Border Patrol started enforcing, you know, checks along the U.S.-Mexico border, which was, of course, you know, really affecting particularly Mexican citizens. And that's sort of when that relationship started. Then you do have moments of opening up. You know, you had the 1965 Hart-Seller Act that put an end to the 1924 quotas. And it was this really celebrated moment of like, we're opening America up to the world again. 
since then, it's been a theme of really just like closing the doors and closing the doors and closing the doors. So, you know, when you're thinking even in the present day about what's going on right now at the U.S.-Mexico border with the end of Title 42, with the fates of asylum seekers that are seeking safety and protection in the United States at this moment, so, you know, these I write about them as history in the book, but I really want readers to be thinking of that history as playing out in our present as well. And it seems like in a lot of ways, the U.S. really on a global scale led the way, led the charge in terms of I think it was the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was kind of the first of its kind to specifically bar a nationality or group of nationalities from emigrating in. There's this really excellent book that I read while I was researching this book called Hitler's American Example, I believe is the title. Um, And it is about how Hitler actually looked to the U.S. for inspiration for the Nuremberg Laws and like literally looked to the way that the United States specifically made both Black people and Native people into second-class citizens, but also the immigration quotas as a way to, like, weaponize citizenship to take that away from Jewish people and mold the German population into what he wanted it to be. So it's an absolutely horrifying example when you realize that that's what literally led to Nazi Germany. That's And it's, you know, we think of things like Nazi Germany as something that's so extreme and wild and how could that happen again? But sort of researching those moments and the comparisons, you realize that they actually happen with these bureaucratic changes in laws that then went on to completely affect people's lives and suddenly make them vulnerable to being rounded up and deported in that case to concentration camps and, you know, but also made them need to flee and also made them not have the citizenship that then allowed them to flee. So then put them in this precarious state of being a refugee that maybe they wouldn't have been in if they had papers. How does the language that has also evolved of expats, immigrants, versus kind of migrants and refugees. How is all of that also coded in a lot of ways? It's super coded. And this is something that Salem and I talk about all the time because, you know, so much of the time if I go abroad, I'm seen as an expat. And then, you know, depending on where he is, he's like legally here. He is a refugee. Like that's his legal status and what gives him protection and stuff. It's so just dependent on what passport you have and where you happen to be born in a lot of cases. It's a literal accident of birth, especially in the case of like U.S. citizens who just by merit of being born on U.S. soil were given U.S. citizenship. And so many of us don't realize what an absolute like blessing and privilege this is in the grand scheme of things. One thing that I constantly think about is the amount of U.S. citizens that, you know, go to Mexico on vacation for spring break or go to Mexico to retire. And then you have Mexican citizens who maybe have family members in the U.S. who then can't come and reunite with their family or have to wait for a very long time or have to take a very dangerous way across the border. You know, you have a very sort of recent trend 
of this idea of like digital nomads going from, say, a country like the United States to somewhere like South America and setting up shop, especially in the age of remote work, earning in dollars, but paying in a much lower currency. So you can like live like a king in these places, totally displacing the general population. It's seen as like a form of neocolonialism. And then you have migrants from South and Central America coming and being seen, you know, being seen as migrants when they're just people from these places. So I think people need to be very critical of just how people are treated based on the citizenship that they have and the words that are used to describe them. And I think if if we saw more, you know, quote unquote, refugees and immigrants as people, as people having a specific experience and understood their experience in context, we would have a really different conversation around immigration today. To what extent are borders and papers and all of this and and the human impacts of it gendered? Mm. So many different ways. <laughs> um, let's see. The first one that comes to mind is the fact that there are some countries in the world where women can't pass on citizenship to their children. You know, Lebanon is one of these places. So you actually have cases where if a Lebanese woman, for example, marries a Palestinian man, their child will be born stateless because, you know, a Palestinian person can't go back to Palestine and then a Lebanese woman can't pass on her citizenship to her child. So you have these very sexist laws in certain countries that are creating generations of stateless individuals that then have absolutely no country to call home at the end of the day. And you also have cases where Often it is men who are sort of criminalized and profiled and maybe put in the crosshairs of law enforcement and then deported more so than women. And then you have you see women who, as a result of that, have to, you know, shoulder supporting a family on their own. So I found that through the reporting in this book, there were so many instances of just women having to be incredibly strong, admirably strong, but who shouldn't have to be that strong because of the way that immigration policies had affected their families. Is it ironic that marriage is so central to the entire immigration system? I think it is. It is ironic. When I was writing this book, it felt like I was really writing a book about love and hate because you had all these amazing love stories and people who are fighting this enormous hatred that they feared would be bigger than them. And, you know, you have this sort of trope of like, oh, you can just get married for a green card or whatever. And it's it's really hard to do that. You have to jump through a lot of hoops. And of course, there are people that do the marriage fraud and stuff. Like there's not not a whole industry around that. But like that takes some commitment. And anyone that's ever done it for real knows that there's so much just admin involved in like coming up with your entire lives together to present to the authorities to see if you're 
legitimate or not. And, you know, so on one hand, I think that, yes, it is very ironic that marriage can be a way to fight against that. And I also think that it's ironic because it's just like, okay, well, not everyone that needs that protection has a partner. Not every, you know, not every type of love is romantic love. What about, you know, different types of family? What about different types of caretakers? I mean, one of the things that comes up in terms of the cultural differences between quote unquote American culture and sort of what the immigration system sees as that is this idea of like the nuclear family is your family up until very recently heteronormative. Like now they're more open to same-sex couples, but definitely married kids. And like, that's what, that's the family that deserves to be together. But then, you know, you have different cultures where it's like, you know, maybe people aren't married, but they have a kid. You have, you know, maybe like my aunt is like my mom. So you have all these different relationships where people need to be together that that can't necessarily be fixed by marriage. Yeah. One time I was at an immigration conference and this one immigration lawyer just had this like marvelous solution, which it sounds really radical, but it's actually not that radical of like, what if you could just get your friend a visa? Because if you think about it, if every single U.S. citizen has the right to bring someone as their spouse. Like if you don't want to bring someone as your spouse, what if you could bring someone as your friend that like needs a country and needs a path to a citizenship that is going to keep them safe? And I just love that idea. First of all, it would actually eliminate marriage fraud because then it would only be people that were actually in like legitimate marriages that were taking that route because you would have so many more options of just, you know, doing kind of an act of solidarity for someone. And then there are instances in the book where like this, these kind of cruel twists on the centrality of marriage, where there was one instance of, I believe he was an immigrant in the U.S., but his wife and kids were not able to join him. And he ended up dying by suicide. And it is easier visa-wise for a widow then to come to the U.S. And the wife was then able to come because her husband had died. It's really cruel. When I learned from, you know, one of my immigration lawyer contacts about that simple fact that it's easier for a widow to come than someone who is currently married, I just, the first thought I had was like, well, that guy wouldn't have committed suicide if his wife and kids had been able to come. Like, simple as that. We would have one more person that's happy and healthy and with the people he loves. So this system is both sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly killing people. And the death toll is enormous and unknown. And just on top of that, just the mental health impact it has on people is immeasurably huge as well. What would it mean if 
we got rid of borders. Because you mentioned earlier that League of Nations meeting post-World War One, I, I believe, where they were seriously considering like, hey, you know what? Maybe we don't need passports. Like maybe this is all too much. I think there could be so many different versions of what that means. I think a lot of people talk to people who are sort of border abolitionists and are like, oh, but wouldn't that be chaos? You know, who would have the rights to kind of what social safety net? Like that's kind of people's number one question. Or, you know, who would have the rights to what jobs and sort of things like that. But I mean, my question in response to them is, first of all, sort of, you know, like if if we're thinking about meritocracy, you know, like Americans love the idea of a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. um, But the way that things are set up is like, if you're applying for a job, typically, certain citizens are given precedence over others. So like, what if someone on the other side of the world is actually the best person for the job? But they're not even considered because they have a passport where it's going to be a pain to get them a visa. So it's not even worth considering them. Like you're actually not hiring the best people when you are privileging certain citizenships. So there's that, you know, and I do think that border and border control, you know, there is a national security argument. Of course, there are criminals in the world. But when you make it so hard, for people to come that they have to go, you know, quote unquote, illegally, that opens the door for pretty much anyone to be able to come. I think the example I really like to use is the way that Ukrainian refugees in particular have been treated in Europe, which has actually been with all caveats applied and that it's horrible to be a refugee in like every, any kind of instance is that, you know, the EU pretty much immediately said any Ukrainian coming can stay for three years without having to apply for asylum, without having to do anything, just to wait to see if the conditions improve and they're welcome to live and work and not have to worry about anything. So I do think that there's so many ways that the world could just be a whole, could extend that kind of kindness and solidarity to more people in a way that they're not right now. So, you know, while I think that a world without borders might have a lot of questions, I do think that there are ways that we could open borders more that would make a more just and equitable world for everyone. How has writing Love Across Borders and meeting all of the people that you have in the process and learning all of their stories How has it influenced or changed how you think about love? It was so special to meet all the people in Love Across Borders because it really made you believe in love and not just believe in love, but believe in commitment and believe in these stories where you see people just loving each other every day and committing to one another, you know, whether that's sort of following someone somewhere, continuing to be together, even when you're separated. It just moved me on a really profound level. And it's just something I consider this enormous privilege because so many people who do suddenly have their love story affected by borders think that they're alone. They think that they did something wrong. They think that they made this horrible mistake. 
and to know that someone else has sort of been frustrated by the same thing sometimes is enough to make you feel better in that moment. To know that someone else has dealt with this sort of horrible power imbalance in their relationship or that someone else has dealt with something as like small but also sad as like having to go to a wedding without your partner as your date because they can't go to that country and that that just kind of sucks to have to do that several times. So it was both learning so much from the way that they loved each other, but also having a love in that community as well. Okay, and ladies, I want to know who here has a love across borders story to share. Are you currently in a long distance relationship with someone who you can't necessarily be together geographically for immigration reasons? Are you someone who has considered or gone through with a green card marriage? Are you in the thick of things with the immigration bureaucracy? I would love to know your thoughts. Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send your voice memos or emails if you prefer. Thank you so much to Anna Lakis Miller for coming on the show. Love Across Borders is officially on sale everywhere. You can find it at your favorite bookstore or support indie bookstores by purchasing it online at bookshop.org. You can also follow Anna on Instagram and Twitter at Anna Lakis Miller. If you are already a Patreon subscriber and are a member of the Unladies Room, then this topic might sound familiar to you because just a few weeks ago, we covered green card marriages over on Patreon, where I got into the wilder details about just what it takes to prove your marriage to U.S. immigration. And yes, I do address the 1990 rom-com green card that really put the aw in marriage fraud. (laughs) And if you want to rep on Ladylike while you are summering abroad or wherever you might be, then you need to head over to unladylike.co slash shop. There is all brand new, beautiful, never before seen merch there waiting for you unladylike.co slash shop. You can also follow Unladylike on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Unladylike Media. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, hosted, edited, and written by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? Oh, well, I was preparing for this question. (laughs) Um... You know, I think I was thinking about it and it's going to sound weird given, you know, what I just wrote a book about. But I think the most unladylike thing about me is that I don't think you need romantic love to be happy. I think that love exists in so many different forms. And I wish, you know, I think that if you do have romantic love that you should cherish it and, you know, treat it like the absolute amazing thing that it is. But I think that you should treat all the other love in your life that way as well. And I wish that we sort of held other kinds of love on a similar pedestal.